uh, thank you so much. So good to be with you today, and I love you too. <laughs> I really do. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Uh, I want to say a quick welcome to everybody uh, who's online with us and in person here. Welcome to Kingwood. So glad you're here with us today. Uh, as you've already heard, if you'll scan the QR code on the screen, if you're online or in front of you, it tells you about the top three things happening in Kingwood. And uh, one really big one that's coming next Sunday is our Summer Vacation Bible School. We have over 200 children already registered for Vacation Bible School. And if you have a, a child, nephew, niece, grandchild, friend, relative, whatever, a neighbor that you'd like to um, participate, just scan the code. It'll take you to the link, give you all the information, and uh, you can register them. We're going to have a fantastic time um, next, starting next Sunday night. And you can see in the foyer, those of you who are here in person on your way out, uh, we are collecting supplies for the Love Lady Center as, as is part of, our, uh, part of the mission of Vacation Bible School to touch our community. So um, if you will stop and take a look at that, that'll tell you how to, how to interact there. And, and, I, and I do want to just say thank you for your, your love, your prayers, your, um, everything that you've communicated, the messages, and the incredible food. I had to get better because I couldn't keep eating like that. You, you guys fed me so well and uh, I just want to say, really from the bottom of my heart, how much I appreciate uh, having a church family. Uh, you, you will probably never know um, how important uh, my church family is to me. My church family is family. And so I appreciate that so much. Uh, and just wanted to give you a quick health update. So um, surgery went well. I'm recovering well. It's the best way to think about uh, my progress is this. Um, slow recovery and, and, uh, and regular pain. So my recovery's going well. The surgery went well. I think I'm on schedule for best we can tell, but I have a lot of pain in my legs and uh, I've been to um, five specialists over 10 times and uh, nobody knows why and they say it's not connected to my neck. So just pray for me that we'll, in a couple weeks, I'll do an x-ray to confirm that the surgery is uh, doing what it's supposed to do, and then we'll have to circle back and see what else we can learn. So just pray for me uh, as, you, as you always have, and uh, just know that I appreciate your prayers more than you, more than you know. Well, today we're continuing our series on um, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews, our summer study uh, called Better. And I hope you've en enjoyed this study, man. It is, it is a complicated book. Every time I read it and every time I've been preparing for one of these messages, it has really pushed me uh, because of the complexity of the book, and I hope it's also pushed you in a good way. But there's one thing you and I all have in common today, uh, and it's that we all have you know, some kind of limitation or another. In other words, you and I are, can only be one person in one place at one time. That, that's really all we can ever be. We, don't, we, can't, we can't go beyond that. Uh, there's limitations in my life that I'm never going to break. I'm, I'm never going to run a four-minute mile, right? I don't, I don't see that happening. I'm never going to dunk a basketball uh, other than I, uh, off a trampoline or a ladder. I'm never going to do that, and I've always wanted to do that. I'm, I'm never going to speak every language in the world, because I have limitations. And those are just the things that's impossible for me to do. There are actually things that I'm capable of doing that I don't always do that good at. I mean, sometimes I leave the dishes in the sink dirty too long, you know, and I can do that. 
I just don't. You know, I'm capable of it. And so you and I have this thing in common in that we're all imperfect. We're all human. We all have these limitations, and we try hard, and each new generation that comes up, you know, recommits themselves as if it's never happened before. This time, we're going to fix it, and everything's going to be different, and everything's never different. Because as humans, we're flawed, we're broken, uh, we probably all have a secret or two that we hope no one ever finds out that we've kind of hidden in the back or buried or only told a few people. And the better we know ourselves, the more human we realize we actually are because we all have weaknesses and we all have gaps. And the Bible actually talks about it in Romans 3, 23. It says it like this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, everybody is less than perfect. Nobody measures up to God, right? That's one thing that we all have in common. And so um, that means that no matter who you are, no matter how good life your life has been, you've done at least one thing wrong in your life, which means that you're guilty of doing that thing. And I'm guilty of doing the things that I've done. So the question becomes, how do we deal with the guilt? Whether you feel it or not, oftentimes we do, fortunately, but whether you feel it or not, how do you deal with the guilt from the things that you've done. Well, there's, there's two ways to deal with guilt, uh, but before I give them to you, I wanna circle back and look at Hebrews 10 and talk a little bit about the ways that we typically try to deal with guilt. Hebrews 10 verse one says this. That's the, that's the stretch of passage I've got today, one through 18, we won't read all that. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices, look at this little phrase because we'll focus on this, repeated endlessly, year after year make perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? In other words, if there was a sacrifice that was good enough to deal with the sin that you or I did, why would we need to just keep doing it? Why would we need to keep offering the sacrifice again and again and again and again? Otherwise, would they not have stopped for the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Now, this is a very difficult passage to understand. And by the way, the whole book of Hebrews is very difficult to understand for many reasons, but let me give you what I think is the biggest reason. It's because the people who this book was written to had an extensive and experiential knowledge of the Old Testament. And most American Christians do not have an extensive knowledge of the Old Testament, and none of us have an experiential knowledge of it because none of us lived, you know, three, four, five thousand years ago. Um, so, in their in their uh, relationship with God, what was necessary is when you would sin, you would have to go and offer a sacrifice of some kind. You'd have to sacrifice some kind of animal, you know, poor animals. You know, it had been bad news to have been an animal back in those days. You're like, hey, I sinned, uh-oh. You know, everything, everything runs for the hedge bushes. But this system is as foreign to us as life on the moon. Because none of us, I mean, let's just think about it for a second. Let's say that one day you're, I don't know, scrolling social media and somebody's post captures your attention. And it is that somebody got this 
incredible dream house that you're never going to have. Or they're on some kind of fantastic vacation that you're never going to go on. Or they're surrounded by friends and you feel lonely. Or it's a giant shot of a big, large family. Or it's a new car. It's some kind of dream of theirs that came true. It's a a promotion at work that you know you're never going to get. And as you're looking at that social media post, uh, this jealousy and envy rages up inside you. And you say, why do they get that and and I get this? Why am I never going to accept? And this rage and justice. So you recognize, hopefully, that that feeling that you feel is, is it's wrong. <laughs> it's a sin, right? Under the definition of the New Testament. And so what do you do? Well, you say, you know what? Sunday, I'm going to go to church, and I'm going to go and slaughter a beaver and a wild hog and I'm going to bring it to the steps during worship, and I'm going to offer it as a sacrifice. Anybody ever had that temptation ever? No. You've never been tempted to do that. You've never thought, I know how I can fix this envy on social media. I know I can fix this jealousy. I'll slaughter some animal, and I'll take it to church and just let its blood pour out. That'd be amazing. We'd have to go ahead and tile this. The carpet's not going to work. Nobody's ever felt that, and you're not struggling with that because that's a system that's over 2,000 years old that you've never experienced. We can't celebrate being free from a system we've never been under. So when it talks about the priest repeating these sacrifices over and over and over and over, we can't relate to that. Not only have we not repeated them, we've not done them once, but there is something we can relate to. And it's a couple of the phrases that I showed you in the verse. It's these two, repeated endlessly. Repeated endlessly, felt guilty for their sins. We do relate to this because we all know what the feeling is like to repeat something over and over and over and over and over, hoping that it will help and it doesn't help. We've all had the experience of having some gap or weakness or flaw or brokenness or sin or something wrong in our life, and we keep hitting it again and again and again and again, thinking, this time, this is going to be the time, this is going to be the thing, this is going to be the approach. And we look at the priest in the Old Testament, we read this scripture, and we just kind of smile because we say, how silly. Why would this priest keep offering these sacrifices again and again and again? But isn't that what we do? I mean, you have people who, are, uh, who, who, who rely on some level of addiction. Just a little bit of alcohol to take the edge off or a prescription drug or maybe an illegal drug. Or, or maybe some other type of addictive therapy that you do because you just can't handle the pressure in your life. So you just repeat this thing over and over and over and over and over and over, hoping it'll make it better, and it doesn't. We can, we can kind of smirk at the Old Testament priests about why would you just keep repeating things that make no sense and don't help, but every one of us knows, every one of us intellectually knows that an addiction makes you a worse version of yourself. And it's never going to help. It's never going to resolve what's deep down inside here that causes you to keep reaching for the repetitive behavior, for the repetitive cycle. See, now we can relate to that. I mean, we, we watch and we look at, at different families and we say, look, 
There's this pattern in this family, like the dad was an alcoholic, and then the kid's an alcoholic, now the grandkid's an alcoholic. I've seen families four generations deep where each new generation was divorced. They suffered under the pain of divorce again and again and again and again. And you look and you say, come on. Why are we repeating the same things over and over and over, thinking that there's going to be some good that comes of it? We lay in bed at night sometimes and replay the same chronic things that we worry about over and over and over and over, and somehow we think the 394th time that we worry about it, it's actually going to change it. We understand repetition, and why is it that we pick up our cell phones over and over and over and over compulsively, addictively, repetitively, and stare into that little screen thinking, bouncing around from app to app to app, thinking maybe this time I'll see, hear, learn something that's going to change what's going on. We are hopelessly imperfect And we do bear the guilt for everything that we've ever done wrong. So what do we do? Well, we usually have one or two methods that I've noticed that we all try to approach it with. One is we just try to work harder. We try to recommit. We try to double down. We become more determined. We think this time, this time's going to be different because I'm going to get a running start and I'm going to hit it harder. And this time I'm going to fix it. And I'm going to do more good than I did bad, and that'll overcome the bad. But how much is enough? How much good do you have to do to overcome the bad? How much better do you have to get to overcome the things that you've done? For how long? Nobody can define that. So sometimes we bury ourselves in career, we bury ourselves in workaholism, we bury ourselves in education or success. And we may even reach most of our goals. There are people that are so driven that they reach most of their goals, but you know what? They get there and they find out it actually did nothing for what's inside. There's no amount of good that you or I can ever do to erase the bad things that we've done. And the Bible tells us that in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves, it's the gift of God. Look at verse 9, not by works. There's no, there's no good work you can do to ever really address that gap, that imperfection, that flaw. So I think sometimes when we realize that we are up against a battle and we want to try to resolve it, we just try to work harder. The other way that I've noticed we've attacked it is we try to escape in uh, oftentimes in some form of pleasure. Maybe we call it the good life. You know, if I can just have, just have the good life, if I can fix my life somehow and make it like the people on TV or the people on social media or the, the image, if I can live the dream. So we, we, we plunge into, you know, various forms of sexual freedom We think if I could just get enough power, if I could just get in control, if I could become the boss, or maybe if I could have enough wealth, accrue enough wealth, 
then what that'll allow me to do is I will never need, I will insulate myself and every need of my life will be so comprehensively met. It won't matter if the stock market fails. It won't matter if the government fails. It won't, I'll have a compound and I'll, you know, just circle myself and insulate myself in and all of my needs will be completely met. And so we try to achieve somehow or, or through fame. If I can get enough, you know, uh, likes, I can push enough followers that it's going to put me in a different status. We sometimes gluttonize ourselves or we dive deep into self-help. You know, I'll just get, I'll learn all the things there. I'll, I'll get all the science and all the neurology and all the physiology and all the psychology and all the philosophy and I'll just plunge myself in and I'll, I'll gain enough that I'll improve myself. And we just indulge intellectually sometimes. Or we'll just extend our life through longevity. Do you know uh, Elon Musk says that the main wealth drivers in the world behind AI have a hidden agenda, and the agenda is they think AI is the best opportunity to expand a longevity in life because AI can run the algorithms over and over and over and over. So we're still looking for the fountain of youth. We just think AI may crack the code faster than humanity somehow and allow ultra-wealthy people just to live a lot longer because we're still trying to figure out how to fix it. And what do we think all that will do for us? It, it reminds me, um, one Christmas, I got a unique Christmas present from my grandparents. Uh, and I, it's, it's odd, I actually don't remember anything else. They give me a Christmas every year, but I don't remember anything else they ever got me but this one year because it was so unique. I loved Reese's peanut butter cups. Anybody? I don't know who the absolute insane genius is that mixed chocolate with peanut butter, but come on. Like, where's that been, you know? I feel like we needed that earlier in human history. Chocolate and peanut butter. And I love Reese's Cup, but we were, you know, we were like a lower middle income family, so we didn't get candy bars and all that a lot, but anytime I did, I, I want a Reese's Cup. But you, you don't have to ask me what I want. And I'd eat the things, and I'd always think, if I could ever just get, like, more, you know, that would fix it. I, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be set. And I was, I don't know, 10, 11, 12, but it had become such a known thing in my family that I like Reese's Peanut Butter Cups that one year for Christmas, my grandparents got me a case. <laughs> now, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about the little, little mini ones. I'm talking about a case. I'm talking about the kind at Sam's Club that you put out on the shelf and you open the box and then 100 people come by and get them, a, you know, a two-pack. I'm talking about quantity. <laughs> you know what I mean? We might call it a gross. I don't, I, and I got that thing, and I remember opening it, and I was mesmerized because I thought, my life is set. <laughs> I have Reese's peanut butter cups for eternity. <laughs> you know, I'm done. And I got those things, and I was so overwhelmed. I didn't know what to do. I went and hit them under my bed. Because I was like, this is a treasure. And so I'd want a Reese's peanut butter cup, and I'd slide a couple under there, you know. Then I'd do, who knows how much weight I gained, you know, in that time. I'm just, I'm just siphoning things off the top, and I'm thinking, it doesn't matter how many you eat, you're never going to run out. Now, here's the thing. Here's, here's, here's the point I want you to get. I ate those things, and can I just tell you, I couldn't stand the sight or smell of a Reese's cup for years. <laughs> After that, I finished them. Hey, I'm faithful. I finished them. 
But I'm telling you, after that, I didn't want to read. I don't even remember how long it took. I'm sure not long enough. But I finished them, and I'm telling you, uh, listen, it didn't fix anything. And man, that's how we are. We think if we could just have unlimited something, that it would, it would, it would change something inside of us, and it, it really doesn't, and oftentimes it makes us worse. So we bury ourselves in these redundant cycles of thinking, if I just have a little more, it'll, it'll fix me. So what, what can we do? Two ways to deal with the guilt that we have from anything we've ever done wrong. Number one, accept the grace God has offered freely in the sacrifice of Jesus. Accept the grace that God has offered freely in the sacrifice of Jesus. God has offered to humanity an unrivaled gift. It is the greatest gift in human history. And we struggle with it, frankly, because it's so simple. And the older you get, the more you realize the world is not a simple place. <laughs> and we struggle with it because it's a free gift, and you don't have to be around long to realize nothing's free. Right? That's, what, that's, what, that's what the world has taught us. Nothing's free and nothing's simple. And we struggle with it because we live in a world where we're used to being let down. We're used to things not coming through as they're supposed to. You know, we all kind of get to that point where we go, well, we'll wait and see how it turns. I know that's what they said, but we'll wait and see how it turns out. And so when a message comes along that says it's free, it's simple, it's a gift, and it'll never fail. Like, we struggle with that because things let us down all the time. Look, as a crazy Alabama fan, every time we don't win the national championship, I feel let down. Anybody? Like, I feel let down. Like, come on, you're Nick Saban. You should win every year. And then when we win, I think, okay, the world's back the way it should be now. <laughs> right? This week, I was, uh, had an important Zoom meeting and uh, about two minutes before the meeting, I opened my laptop, and the screen's dark, and nothing, nothing. You know, I want to shake it, but I go, I don't, think that's, I don't think that's how technology works. I want to slap it. You know, I don't think that's how that works. I'm just playing, playing it like a piano, you know, like Liberace. Blah, 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 nothing. And I can't get the thing. About 10 minutes into the meeting, I get the thing to turn on. And then Zoom, when I finally open it, says, installing updates. Oh, well, take your time. Only 15 minutes late for a meeting now. Th things, things let us down. The, the car blows up, and it blows up our budget, and the copier at work breaks, and the stock market goes down, and layoffs happen, and then, and then people let us down. Friendships are broken, and agreements are broken, and leaders fail us, and the repairman doesn't show up when he's supposed to. Our spouse forgets the errand they were supposed to run that we were depending on them to remember. But just before we get a little bit too focused on how much the rest of the world's broken, we also have to remember we let ourselves down because we thought by now we would have done better. We thought by now we would have fixed this. You know, that uh, New Year's resolution is just a faint memory now. <laughs> that commitment that we had, it was hot in January, you know. We're coming out. But man, it's, uh, I, I didn't even remember. I didn't remember. I forgot I was so passionate about that just four months ago. And we let ourselves down. 
And we think by now we would have probably been a better spouse or a better parent or a better employee or a better employer. But we let ourselves down. And we don't even have a category for something free, something generously given, something that will never fail. Like we don't even have a category for that. But here we see it in Hebrews 10, 11, and 12. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. This is kind of a repeat of verse 1 and 2 we read earlier. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Look at this, verse 12. But when this priest, this priest is Jesus. That's who, that's who the verse is talking about. Had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So what this means is, is there's one sacrifice that's so good, no other one's ever going to be needed. And it's so complete and so finished and so final and so can never fail. But let, let's just look at the Old Testament practice for a minute we saw in that verse, okay? It basically says the priest would offer daily sacrifices. Here we go. We're getting the thing going. And the priest would stand as he offered those sacrifices. And he would offer multiple sacrifices, different kinds of sacrifices, repeatedly, over and over and over. And the result was it never took away guilt or sins. But now let's compare it to what we just read, what Jesus did. So Jesus offered not daily sacrifices, but for all time. The priest stood. Jesus sat down. Do you know why Jesus sat down? No more works needed. It's done. It's finished. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He went to the throne of God. He sat down at the right hand of the Father. It's done. And then there's these multiple sacrifices. There's one sacrifice with Jesus. There's only one. And those never took away guilt or sins, but Jesus took away guilt and sin. Jesus' sacrifice was a better sacrifice because it washes away. It effectively, once for all time, forever, washes away sin and guilt, and it cleans the soul. Isn't that right? Jesus' sacrifice is better because it's better than any of the good works that we can do, and it's better than any of the pleasures that we can pursue in this world. Hebrews 10, 17 summarizes the whole thing and says this, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. So here's the question I have for you today. Have you received the grace that God has offered to you freely in Jesus? All right, now here's the second way to deal with guilt. Walk, the first one was accept. The second one is walk in the grace God has offered freely in Jesus Christ. You know what I find after being a pastor for a long time? We Christians oftentimes struggle to walk in grace. We really do. And you can tell it by the way that we act, and you can tell it by the way we treat other people, and you can tell it during election season, and you can tell it on social media. And you can tell it through how uh, exclusive or um, exclusive that we can be at times. You can tell it by the way we treat ourselves. We don't even treat ourselves right. I mean, think about it. Do you honestly think that you treat yourself exactly the way Jesus treats you? 
Every time that you treat yourself in a way differently than Jesus would treat you, you're rejecting grace. You're not walking, you're not walking in grace. We see it in the breakdown of the family, which statistics tell us that the divorce rate among Christians is about the same as it is non-Christians. We struggle to walk in grace. And so let me just give you one example of how, how I see this, okay? It, it's in our devotional life. I think one of the reasons that many Christians struggle to have a devotional life, and let me just tell you what that is, that's just a set time where you pray and read the Bible. That's what, that's what I mean when I say devotional life. I think a lot of Christians have a difficult time establishing that routine in their life, and let me tell you why. Because we try to establish it in our own determination. We try to establish it in our own works. We try to establish it in our own commitment. We try to establish it in our own dedication. We, we try to establish it in our own effort. And, and it, but but it's, a he, it's kind of a heavy thing because we say, okay, I'm a Christian now, and here's kind of how it goes. I'm going to read my Bible. It's like a New Year's resolution. I'm going to read my Bible, and I'm going to pray every day, you know. And that, that's good for about two days. And on the third day, you miss, and then one day turns into two, and two turns into a week. And then about seven days later, you go, man, I've missed so much. And what you do is you try to take all the scripture you're supposed to read and read it all in one day. And, you, and then you think, oh, here's all the things I should have been praying for, and I hadn't been praying for them. So now, and then you have this nuclear you know, meeting with God. And you leave it so tired that you go, I can't do that. And then here's what you feel. Listen, this is very important. Here's what you feel. I failed God. I failed God. I had a meeting. Not with my boss, not with, you know, the mailman. I had a meeting with God. What kind of Christian am I that I can't even keep a meeting with God? What kind of Christian am I that I can't even do something as simple as pray and read the Bible after Jesus died for me, laid his life down for me, and I can't even find a spot in my schedule where I can pray? And those voices, now, now what do you feel? Now you feel guilt. Now you feel condemnation. Now you feel shame. And those things compound on you. And now not only are you dragging behind you all the chapters of the Bible you're supposed to have read, now you're dragging all this guilt. Right? And it's weighing you down because you're not walking in grace. And so what happens is, is you have this guilt, but because you're a Christian, now you have a new word for it called conviction. By the way, nothing that I just described is conviction. None of it. Conviction empowers you. Conviction gives you hope. Conviction lifts you up. Guilt tears you down. It makes your life heavier, and it makes you feel like no matter how hard you try, you're never going to get it. That's the difference in guilt and conviction. Conviction moves you toward God. Guilt moves you away from him. It says, I, 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 can't, I can't. What can I do? And so I just want to wrap up this morning and, and tell you how I, how, I learned about God's, how I learned to walk in God's grace. When we were in Mississippi, uh, many of you know, we were there pastoring a church two miles from the Gulf of Mexico. Hurricane Katrina hit. 
largest natural disaster in American history, 34-foot storm wave hit our shore. And uh, I'll never forget my first morning back on the ground in my house. I couldn't sleep. I woke up before sunrise. I went out on the back patio, and I I just said, oh, God, (laughs) what am I going to do? What are we going to do? And as the sun rose that morning, the landscape for miles and miles and miles had been changed, had been scarred. Couldn't find people, didn't know where they were, didn't know if they were alive. Search and rescue missions is crazy. And over the next several months, I I, I lived through something I had never seen in my life. We had over 200 people living on our property that were part of the efforts to help, you know, restore everything. And those 200 people shared two showers. The power was out half the time. The water was polluted. We had to feed them three meals a day, and we had to try to rebuild a church in the middle of that. I mean, it was, it was seven hours a day, morning till night. My phone would start ringing in the morning. I would have to charge my phone three times a day because it couldn't keep up with the volume of communication we were having to do to try to keep everything moving. And look, I'm just going to tell you, during that time, I, wasn't, I didn't read the Bible and pray much. I was running for my life. And I can remember this heaviness that started to set in on me. You're supposed to be a pastor. How are you going to rebuild a church when you're not even reading your Bible? You're supposed to be an example. How can you be an example when you're not even praying? Ah. (laughs) I had nothing left. I had no energy. I had no determination. I had nothing else to give. Now listen, here's what I want you to know. I had a, I had a degree a, a degree in ministry with theology and Bible classes. At that point, I had been a Christian, I don't know, 15 or 18 years. I had been a leader in the church on about every level you could be, and I was a senior pastor, a lead pastor at that moment. And I'm telling you, I was trying to drive my life off guilt and not off grace. And thank God, the Spirit of God broke through to me. And one morning, I got up and it dawned on me and I said, God, I don't even know if this is right. It feels very counterintuitive to me because like most of us, I had been raised in a sense of works or earn it or or guilt. And I got up one morning and I said, God, I don't even know if this is right, but here's here's my prayer today. I don't know what's going to happen today. I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to read the Bible at all today. I don't know if I'm going to pray much today. But here's what I know. I know Jesus died for me, and your grace is sufficient. So today, I lean back on you, and I depend on your grace. I have no more effort. I have no more work. I have no more earn it. So today I lean back on you and I depend on your grace to carry my relationship with you. And then at night sometimes I would pray, God, I really didn't, I really didn't have the kind of relationship with you today that I wanted to. But you know what? I received grace today and I depend on your grace to carry our relationship. Now look, I'm just telling you, It reoriented my whole life. 
Because when I got, when I got a few weeks down the road, you know what I found? I found that my that part of my relationship with God, that part of uh, reading the Bible and praying and meeting with God and prioritizing it, it never was rebuilt through effort. It never was rebuilt through my determination. It never was rebuilt through my discipline. It was rebuilt through the grace of Jesus Christ because I learned to walk in grace. And here's what I learned. If you cut the kingdom of God down to the smallest atom, you know what that atom's made of? Grace. And grace is the fuel of the Christian life. It's not effort, it's not works. Grace is a unique message to the Christian faith. Every other religion in the world is. Do better, try harder, earn it. And you know what we think? Here's what we think. We think, well, Jesus saved me, now it's up to me. No, it's not. Jesus saved you, and the same grace that saved you is the same grace that'll carry you through every season of your life when you're up or when you're down, when you're good or when you're bad. And here's what I found. Because I embraced grace, life began to be breathed back into my soul. And it began to fuel my effort, and it, it was easier. And you know what? It took so much of the pressure and the guilt and the burden and the weight off of me on was I doing enough or not. And when I begin to accept grace, there's a joy that flowed through my life and I gravitated back toward God. Not that I was like away, I was just overwhelmed. But I just gravitated, I just floated over there. I was in a grace wave. I just floating back over toward God. I just floating back over there. I came today to do my very best effort to lift every weight and every burden off of your shoulders that God never intended for you to carry. That's why I came. And I hope you'll receive that. So, why is Jesus' sacrifice better than any effort you can give or anything you can experience? Here it is. Jesus is a better sacrifice because he sets us free from all our attempts to fix ourselves, Whether you're saved or not. That's why a sacrifice is better. Would you stand with me? If you're online with us today, our prayer team would love to pray for you. They're ready. They've been praying for you already this morning. If you have a need or a prayer request, reach out in the comments and they'll join you immediately. For all of us, we're going to sing this song and we're going to welcome the presence of God into our heart and mind. And I'm telling you today, God came to lift burdens off your shoulder. Lord, I thank you today that you're a God of grace. And the grace of Jesus Christ is the most powerful thing in the whole world. And your grace will set us free from earning it, from guilt, from effort, from pushing, from trying to fix ourselves. God, I thank you today that your grace is present. In Jesus' name, worship with our team.